0: All right, let's uh, have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this time again this evening, and we pray that as we, uh, our country and even our church faces this time of, of a difficulty and trial because of the virus, that you'll keep us safe according to your blessed will, and that uh, we'll be able to carry on ministry the uh, best we can under your good providence bless our class tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, what I'm going to do in the future here is, and I should have done it already, is uh, I can just make a PDF of these. uh, There is PowerPoint viewer and all that, although I went to Microsoft's website and they said PowerPoint viewer is no longer there. There's other viewers, you know, but but I just made a I just made a PDF of this thing, and it's beautiful. It's just you know one slide after another. So, what I'm going to do in the future uh, is to, like for tonight, I'll put the PDF of this. We'll put it on our website with the audio version. We have this text there, but I'm going to go back to the previous ones. And I guess that goes to to Bob or something to send it to him, or yeah. and we'll, we'll make, have to make a place to put it on the website so that each each of the lessons we've had so far. This is number eight, so one through seven. I'll have a PDF of of the slides. Yeah, we currently have, I think the notes is one file at the top, uh-huh. but we could do like we do in the sermon and put a yeah. button next to each. Put one next to it and do one PDF for each one. And then as I go through, for the first time, I'm going to actually mention the numbers so that people who are listening will know which slide I'm referring to when I talk about a thing. So here's the quiz for reviewing last week. Uh, the Great Bible was the first authorized version in the Church of England. Now, I'm going to go ahead here because here's where we've been so far. We had Tyndall's New Testament, 1526. England is still a Roman Catholic country, so Tyndall did this on the continent and was smuggled back into England and sold illegally and then one of his assistants, Coverdale produced a complete Bible with the Old Testament and then Tyndale's New Testament again, uh, Coverdale couldn't translate Hebrew, so he translated some of it from Latin then Matthew, another one of his assistants another one of Tyndale did this, produced his own Bible, 1537 and eventually when Henry VIII broke 1534 and established the Church of England, uh, Coverdale's version and Matthew's version was allowed to be sold in England. But then the Church of England decided they needed an official version, the official version of the Bible, their own Bible, a Bible they put in every church. And that's the Great Bible, 1539, done by Miles Coverdale under his leadership. But again, it was uh, not a translation of the original languages of the Old Testament completely because uh, Coverdale did not know Hebrew and so some of it was a translation from like the prophets, uh, the minor prophets, some of the major prophets was a translation of the Latin uh, and uh, brought into English. And then... uh, we talked about, uh, so the fifteen the the Great Bible was the first authorized version <clears throat> in the Church of England. And then 1560 brings us to the Geneva Bible because <clears throat> uh, after uh, Henry VIII died, you remember his son, Edward the Sixth reigned. He was a Protestant, but he didn't reign too long. And then his sister Mary, a Roman Catholic, brought England back to the Roman Catholic Church and then uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne, and she engineers the Elizabethan Compromise. And so the Anglican Church under her was Protestant-like. The, the 39 articles that she established, if you look at those articles today, a, they have justification by faith alone. But it's, it's, it's a lot of ceremony. A lot of stuff goes on in the Anglican Church. And so you have high Anglicans and low Anglicans. You have evangelical Anglicans and you know kind of liberal Anglicans and Roman Catholic. Many Anglicans over the year have, over the years have gone back to Rome, become uh, cardinal bishop uh, Cardinal Newman, a famous uh, uh, Roman Catholic uh, priest. He went over to. Uh, there was a whole movement within inside the, Roman Catholic, the the Anglican Church, and there's always been that. So in 1560, uh, some Protestants in Geneva under Calvin, some Englishmen who had fled there under Mary, produced a Bible, Geneva Bible, the best Bible produced up to then. Translated all the way from the original languages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a very well-done Bible, Calvinistic, had these notes, a large number of notes, like a study Bible. And the Church of England said, hey, we need to do something because the Great Bible is in fear. So they produced the Bishop's Bible, 1568. But as we said, the Bishop's Bible was still not up to snuff. It wasn't as good as the Geneva Bible. And so you had two Bibles. You had in the church, the Bishop's Bible was the, church, the Bible of the, of the Anglican Church, the official Bible. But most people who bought a Bible bought a Geneva Bible. Evangelicals they would tend to be Calvinistic and they would they would have that Bible. So coming back to our questions, the Great Bible was the first authorized version in the Church of England. That was, of course, true. It was put in every church of England and so forth. And authorized to be read in the churches. That's what the if they read the Bible, when they read the Bible, they would read that. Two, the English Church was brought back in the Roman Catholic Church during the reign of Edward VI. I said, no, that was Mary. Edward died, Edward VI took over from Henry VIII but he died shortly he was sickly and quickly Mary then becomes actually Edward designated his cousin uh, to be uh, he, he made a will and designated his cousin who was a Protestant to uh, to. Uh, she reigned for nine days and but the people rallied around a, the real descendant of, of, of Henry, and that was Mary, his daughter. She's a Roman Catholic. She she brings the church back into Rome. The Geneva Bible was the first English Bible to use verse divisions. True. The f- verse divisions were created in 1551 by Robert Estian for his Greek New Testament. 1551 and the first english bible to use that was 1560 the geneva bible had verse divisions verse each verse was marked off separately with a number that's a good thing and a bad thing it's a good thing in the sense that verse divisions are nice because verse numbers are nice because you can tell work you can say hey go to john 3:16 but i said you know marking each like the king james does and this and the geneva bible did each verse is a separate paragraph. That kind of could confuse the reader as to what's, what's the context. So like our NIV Bibles, have, they have the verse numbers there, but they're laid out in paragraphs. So you can kind of see, okay, this goes with this, or we think it goes with this. The Puritans arose during the reign of Elizabeth. Yes, the Puritans were those in the Roman Catholic Church. They had this Elizabethan compromise who said, you know, we want a pure church, we want a more Protestant church, we want a church like Calvin, we, we want a purified church and so there was always this friction in the Church of England and we're going to see, it's going to come up just in a second now with, with James and the King James Version these Puritans were uh, and the whole Puritan movement, we have whole Puritan literature, people uh, beginning in the uh, 16th century, 17th century and people recommend today you read the Puritans and so forth like that they're very Calvinistic very big on sanctification, Very good, some very good stuff in the Puritans uh, the bishops, number five the bishops bible was translated during the reign of Queen Mary I'm looking at slide two, I said I was going to mention the slides here the bishops bible was translated during the reign of Queen Mary no it wasn't um, because during Mary's reign there was no Bibles translated even during Edward's reign there was no Bibles translated it was during Elizabeth's reign and uh, um, that the Bishop's Bible was translated the douay Reims version was produced to help the average, average Catholics know the Bible think about that no, no it wasn't produced so we talked about our Bibles here we've got the 1568 Bishops Bible that's the English Bible but the Roman Catholics got into it so when Elizabeth comes to the throne Roman Catholics flee England now I mean they're still Catholic like people in the Church of England but I mean real Roman Catholics they have to flee because she persecutes Catholics and catholics uh, you know tried to tried to overthrow her mary scotland but, but catholics were always trying to overthrow and for many many years in the in england english english people looked england looked very uh, scant at catholics they didn't even have the right to vote till 1900 or something i forgot what it was it's just you know because there was this friction about catholics and, and the church of england and they tried to overthrow her. They had a plot called a gunpowder plot Guy Fawkes Day. Ever heard this Guy Fawkes Day? He sees people wearing these strange masks and stuff. If you watch any British TV, you'll see them talk about this. They celebrated it. as like a holiday. But it's really about trying to blow up, kill King, the, the king and stuff the Roman Catholics did. So Catholics never got over the fact uh, until recent times that England had separated from Roman Catholic the Roman Catholic Church, and there were always Catholics there, Catholic families, but they couldn't even own land. They couldn't do anything. They were just really discriminated, we would say, against until the 20th century about, you know. So, and not looked upon very favorably generally. Now, uh, you know, I think the Queen has said that uh, a member of her royal family can marry a Catholic now. You know, I mean, that's that's big news. You know that. Think she could marry a Catholic if they wanted to, or something like that. But up until then, no, it's not. Been. So, everybody who's been married, like Meghan Markle, she had to become a member of the Church of England. She did become a member of the Church of England you know, to, in order to uh, be in the royal family. So, the the Douai, the Douay Rings version here was a version <coughs> produced by Roman Catholics to help Roman Catholic scholars refute the Protestants. So up until the Protestant Reformation, Catholics didn't care anything about the Bible, pretty much. I mean, the average priest, the average bishop, it was what the church taught. They didn't, they didn't, uh, they had scholars, Thomas Aquinas and others, they appealed to the Bible, but it wasn't an exegetical kind of religion or a biblical religion, Catholicism wasn't. But after the Protestant Reformation, Protestants realized we've got to train priests and scholars who can refute these Protestants. Because we know they're wrong. We've been doing this for 1,500 years. We know we're right. So they said, we need an English Bible. Because when we get into a debate, we debate with these English guys, we don't have a Bible to cite. we we got to try to cite the Latin Vulgate and translate it instantly into English. And that's hard to do on it's full and flying. So this Bible was made for scholars, for people to refute. It wasn't really made for the average person. And it's not until the 20th century that the Roman Catholic Church decides, "Yeah, I think it'd be a good idea for maybe the average Catholic to have a Bible." But that's that's, you know, 400 years uh, almost 400 years later, 350 years later. So that was done right before the King James version, 1699, 1610. The Douay-Rheims, translated from the Latin Vulgate. Again, not the original languages. The Pope didn't allow translation from the original Greek and Hebrew until nineteen forty-three. The Council of Trent had declared the Latin, the authentic version, the inspired you know, the inspired version. The Latin Vulgate that's it. It's inspired, it's an error, it's a it's the authentic version. And so it wasn't until nineteen forty three. It's not that Catholics didn't know, but they 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 put their faith in the Latin Vulgate, at least ecclesiastically. So that's slide uh, five there. Now we come to slide six and uh, the King James Version. So we're now down to 1611. And these Bibles build upon one another. They're not new translations. They're all building upon one another. So even though the Geneva Bible was not accepted by the Church of England officially... they, They still used it. They referred to it. Everybody looked back at it. And this whole line has continued on. 1881, we'll see the revised version. 1901, the American Standard Version. The New American Standard Version. They're all in this same line of Bibles. And that brings us to page 36, King James Version 1611. After Elizabeth's death, 1603, because she had no heir, she was succeeded by... James the Sixth of Scotland, who was the son of Mary Queen of Scots, and a descendant of Henry the Seventh. So, uh, see his picture here in slide seven. In slide eight, there is this chart. out, You can see on page thirty-seven. You can see he's related uh, to Henry the Seventh. Uh, Members. Henry the Eighth is the son of Henry the Seventh, and uh, Henry the Seventh. Uh, through Mary Tudor, his daughter, James IV. So you can see he's related to the to the English throne. You know what I'm saying? That's the point. So the English parliament, the English government, they're looking for someone to uh, become king. And this has happened several times in English history where there's no heir. Uh, they have turned to uh, Germany and other places to... Because they're all intermarried. These royal families are intermarried and so forth. So you can see this is uh, James Sixth of Scotland. And so they bring him to England and they call him James the I in England. So he is king of Scotland and king of England. Now, he's, the countries are not combined in 1611, 1603 when he comes. They are combined 100 years later. So what we think of as the United Kingdom... That happens in the early 1700s. They combine the two countries, so there's really just separate countries. He's, he's, he's ruling England and he's ruling Scotland, but you know, they're just like separate countries altogether. So we call him, uh, you know, James the First of England, but he's James the Sixth of Scotland. And uh, so he comes to England, and one of the first things he does is. Uh, when he comes on the way, the, the Puritans are really excited. Oh man, are they happy. Because uh, Scotland had become a very Protestant country under John Knox. One of those guys under Calvin in during the time when uh, they did the Geneva Bible, a guy named John Knox. And he goes back to Scotland and he has a reformation there. And Scotland becomes a Protestant country. And the Scottish church has always been more Protestant. And Calvinistic than uh, the English church. Now, now it's pretty liberal. It's just a liberal church. But it was for years a much more Calvinistic, Protestant kind of church. And so, one of the first things he does is he comes to Hampton Court here. This is slide nine. And there's a conference. And the Puritans, they're just all excited because they think he's going to help us purify. Because he's from Scotland. He's got to be a real Calvinist, you know, and he's not. <laughs> He's not, but one of the things they uh, they did agree on was a new translation of the Bible. So this is Doctor John Reynolds here, slide ten, and uh, at this conference he was the president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford, one of the colleges at Oxford, and he proposed a new translation. He said that a translation be made of the whole Bible as constant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek. And this to be set out and printed without any marginal notes, and only to be and only to use in all the churches of England in time of divine service. Reynolds felt that a new translation was needed to replace the Bishops' Bible, which was then the authorized version. He pointed out to certain mistakes, certain printing errors. One of them, like Psalm one hundred six thirty, he read this verse to James. It says, "Then stood up Phineas and prayed." Reynolds argued the Hebrew should be trained. "Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment." So he's saying they, they mistranslated that Hebrew word. They did. Remember I said scholars today know more about Hebrew than they did then, only because we've had a lot of years of studying Hebrew and all that kind of stuff. This was in the early days, and they didn't have much contact with Jews in this period especially. So uh, James, um, James, uh, slide 11 here, he agrees that. He likes that idea. And he says this, I never found yet a Bible well translated in English, but I think that all of, of all of them, Geneva is the worst. Well, that's not what they wanted to hear. They didn't like that because these, these puritans love Geneva Bible, but he, he was not Calvinistic. I wish some special pains were taken for a uniform translation which could be done by the best learned men in both universities, Oxford, Cambridge, reviewed by the bishops, presented to the Privy Council, ratified by royal authority to be read in the whole church and none other. As I previously stated, the Geneva Bible was really the best Bible that had been produced, but the King James had some personal reason for disliking it. One of those reasons was its extensive notes. So it had these notes, and some of them were anti-monarchical. I mean, here's one, Exodus 119. In the margin there it says, you remember the midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh and didn't, uh, you know, kill the children and so forth, uh, didn't tell them about these children, these... uh, Hebrew children. It says their disobedience herein was lawful. Oh, uh, uh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Disobeying the Pharaoh, the king, is not lawful. But it says their uh, dissembling was evil. That is, they shouldn't have lied, but they had the right to disobey the king. Well, no king likes a Bible that says there are circumstances in which you can disobey the king. So these kind of notes, he didn't like. Second Kings Second Chronicles 15.6 suggested that an evil monarch could be worthy of death. Well, he didn't like that kind of thing. So, uh, slide 13 here, pet number 3. Not everyone at the conference was happy about the new translation. One critic, Richard Bancroft, a picture here, he said uh, he complained. He was the Bishop of London. If every man's humor were followed, there would be no end to translating. He was opposed to the project, but he went along with it, and he ended up actually directing... The project so slide 14 here it is the King James Version here's the title page from the King James Version 1611 um, and I'm going to focus in on that printing right there in the middle in just a moment here because that brings us to a particular point about the King James Version that's misunderstood sometimes <clears throat> So uh, I say there's some confusion about the number of scholars who have worked on the project. A letter from King James to the bishop mentioned 54. They're going to have 54 people. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's been the way good Bibles have been translated. A number of people have looked at them. But most reliable says 47 served. They were divided into groups. This is how it's done today. Six groups. Three groups were for the Old Testament, two groups for the New Testament, and one group for the Apocrypha. So, six groups for the Old Testament, because that's larger. You know, uh, I mean, three groups for the Old Testament, two groups for the New Testament, and one for the Apocrypha. So, yes, here's slide 15. There's the Apocrypha. There's a table of contents. And you can see right in the middle, after the Old Testament, is the books of the, called Apocrypha. And there is a page from Esdras, 1st Esdras, one of the books in the Apocrypha. So, when our King James' only friends say. We want the sixteen eleven King James. They don't really mean that. Because they don't want the Apocrypha, you know, they don't want that, but they 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 choose to ignore the fact, even though I'm sure they many of them must know that it does contain the Apocrypha. Now again, the King James Translators didn't think it was inspired necessarily anything like that. It's just it was a tradition we've talked about. Remember in the Church of England and so forth, there was a tradition and so forth of the Apocrypha reading the Apocrypha. So, um, uh, when the whole Bible had been translated, it was reviewed by a smaller number of 12 men, two from each of the original six groups. That's the way it's done today. ESV, NIV. Two men, Miles Smith and Thomas Bilson, supervised the work of the printer, wrote the preface, the translators to the reader. So there was a preface that the King James translators wanted they put in the front of the Bible for the for you and I to read. Now, no King James Version hardly no none really print that. It's really quite an interesting thing. It's interesting because it again it sort of refutes the King James only. It does refute the King James only argument, this introduction, this preface to the reader. Yes. One of my professors in seminary wrote a really good article on like this. Did he really? Uh-huh. <coughs> I know he called me really Jumped. good <laughs> he's all true you know. up so um, so number five in revising the Bishops Bible they were to consult the original languages other versions like Tyndall's Matthew great Bible and so forth number six we have the rules drawn up I'm not going to read all the rules this is uh, number 17 but I do want to <clears throat> Focus on that first one. Because <clears throat> the rule says the bishop's Bible is to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. See there it is. We want you to start with the bishop's Bible. We know it's got some problems. And we want you to consult the original languages, <clears throat> but we want you to don't alter it as much as you you know, don't don't just alter it willy-nilly, you know. But notice what the the title page says here the Holy Bible containing the Old and New, newly translated out of the original tongues, and with the former translations diligently compared and uh, revised by the Majesty's special commandment. And so a lot of people <clears throat> read that and they think this is a brand new translation. You know, this is like a fresh translation. They just started from scratch. No, they didn't. They didn't start from scratch. But it kind of gives that impression, newly translated out of the original languages. No, it wasn't newly translated. You know, in a sense it is, but in a sense it's not. Because they start with the Bishop's Bible. In fact, they were given copies of the Bishop's Bible. The translators were. Copies of the Bishop's Bible to work from. That's what they worked from is the Bishop's Bible and made notes and corrections. They didn't just write a whole new translation. <clears throat> so it's got a whole list of things here. Page 38, proper names to be retained. The old ecclesiastical words are to be kept. You use church, not congregation like Tyndall did. <clears throat> so it, it goes on, you know. Word has different significance, significations, and so forth. No change made in chapter and divisions unless necessary. No marginal notes at all affixed, only for explanation. Now we'll see that they got 8,000 notes in the King James Version. <laughs> we'll see in a moment here. Cross-reference are inserted. <clears throat> it's got a whole list. These are good rules. So when translations are made today, they, they specify, here's what you're supposed to do, here's the, here's the way you do it. These are all, you know, good things to have. Uh, at the bottom of page 39 in, the translations are to, are to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible, like Tyndall's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, White Church's, as the great Bible. So you can, use, you can use what other people have done <clears throat> if it's better, you know, and improved. So there's a whole list of rules that they set up. Then page 40, number 7. When the whole Bible had been translated, it was reviewed by a smaller group of men. Who met for nine months in 1610. Of the twelve, John Boyce took notes at these meetings. They were lost from 1688 until 1964 when they were discovered by Professor Ward Allen. He wrote a book about it. Two men, Miles Smith and Thomas Bilson, supervised the work of the printer and Smith wrote the preface. A study of the text shows that the Tyndall Coverdale versions were predominant sources. But they made use of Latin. Why do they keep making uses of Latin? Because they don't know what the Hebrew says especially. Sometimes Greek, but mostly Latin. They don't know, what what is this animal? Wow, this is a strange animal. We never heard of this animal. We don't have any animal. Nobody had been over to Israel. <laughs> they didn't know the fauna and the flora in Israel. They, they had no idea. You know, too. I mean, people had been there in the in the Crusades, but there weren't like a lot of dictionaries and and books around they could look at and find what the what this fauna flora is about. So they would often look at the Latin Vulgate because those people were closer by Jerome when he translated the Vulgate, he was in the Holy Land, pretty much the Old Testament. So uh, they used that. It's generally agreed that the Greek text was primary of Jesus 1598 edition of the text Receptus. Remember we talked about Erasmus first edition 1516, that other people came along. Robert Estian, Biza, who was Calvin's assistant, took over for him. He produced nine editions, and his 1598 edition. Well, this is 1603, when it's starting. So they're looking at the latest Greek New Testament, but it's still a TR. It's in that tradition of those Texas receptus. They didn't have the oldest manuscripts and so forth. The text of the Old Testament was the second great second great rabbinic Bible of 1524-25, published by Daniel Bomberg. You don't probably you don't remember that, but these early rabbinic Bibles were were Jews who got who converted to Christianity. I mean there was a lot of pressure to convert to Christianity back in the 1500s and 1600s, places like Spain, you know, it's either die or convert, you know. So some of the, and some people make genuine conversions. I'm not s I am not do not know about you know these some of these, but some are genuine. And so you did have some Christians who are now no Hebrew. and and print Hebrew Bibles and things like that that happens Um, so that's uh, chart 18 here uh, slide 18 I'm just showing it it uses the Texas Receptus Bezos 1598 and the second great rabbinic Bible now what we'll see is every English Bible since then has used the second great rabbinic Bible so when we get to this controversy about the King James Only, it's really not about the Hebrew text at all. Even the NIV uses the second grade remain. Now it doesn't technically use that; it uses what we call uh, Biblical Hebraic Stu Carthensian, but it's still that same Bible. the The Hebrew the Hebrew text has, has changed so little; it's just minute. So the, the the controversy that comes up about Bibles and the text and you know this this text and that text. It's talking about the Greek text and not so much about the Hebrew text. We're still using pretty much the same Hebrew text. So, uh, number nine, the first edition was a large folio edition, measuring nine by 14 fourteen and a half. Remember that these Bibles were made to be put in churches, not in the hands of people necessarily. They were large Bibles. Printed in Gothic black letter print. Here's uh, number 19. Here's number 20. You can see you can see that Gothic print there, and then you can see a close-up of it. That was considered more ecclesiastical, you know, more refined. And uh, so, chapter headings, marginal notes, and other material not in the King James were printed in Roman letters. Paragraph divisions were marked with a paragraph symbol. Just so that paragraph symbol, though. number 36 there, so there is paragraphs in those King James versions. However, for some unexplained reason, these stopped at Acts 20:36. 2036, 2036. So, if you, if you have a King James version that has paragraph divisions, uh, if you have a printed Bible or one that has that, has that marker, uh, you can't find the paragraph marker after Acts 20:36. Somehow, it got left out, probably by the printer. I'm sure they had them in there, but. They got left out and never really corrected. her. There's only one in Psalms and six in the Apocrypha. So they're not really very well done, but they're, they're there. Now, uh, number 21 here is slide 21 the preface. <clears throat> in the preface to the readers, the translators are aware that their translation would face a great deal of opposition, especially from those who saw no need for a new translation in English, so in several statements, primarily at the beginning of the preface, they discuss the problem of hostility to new translations. So they're, they're addressing objections in the preface that they know are going to come up. And some are going to say, hey, it's just like people say today. There's so many Bibles out there. Why in the world do we need the NIV or the ESV? we got a number of translations. Why do we need another one? You know, what, what's the need for all that? If the King James good King James version was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It should be good enough for us, right? You're supposed to laugh at that, you know. Yeah. He but but the, I've actually heard preachers preachers say that. I mean, they actually, I'll say things like that. So, but I mean, you will hear people say, you know, sometimes it does seem like we've got too many. You know, it does seem uh, overcrowded. And they were dressing that, and they say this. Zeal to promote the common good, whether it be by devising anything ourselves, or revising that which hath been labored by others, deserves certainly much respect and esteem. So we should, you should be happy that we're trying to come up with better things, or revising things, but it's fine, but cold entertainment, reception in the world. So, you know, it's, it's strange to us that it's welcome with susp- uh, suspicion instead of love and so forth. So people really uh, are, are against us, and we don't really, you know, why should they be? Um, he's, and they say, every time you come up with something new, people object against it there in that last thing. B, on page 41, this and, and more to his purpose, his majesty that now reigneth knew full well, according to his singular wisdom given to him by God, the rare learning and experience that he attained unto, namely that whosoever tempteth anything for the public, especially pertaining to religion, to the opening, clearing the word of God, the same findeth himself upon a stage to be glouted upon by every evil eye to be casteth himself headlong upon pikes to be gored by every sharp tongue. So what they're saying is, we expect this, we know that when you try to do something, people object to it. If you try to do something with the Bible, towards the middle of the preface, they return to the problem, they say, see many men's mouths have been open for a while with speeches about the translation so long in hand so it starts in 1603 kind of officially there and this is in a long time 1611 or rather perusal of translations made before and asked what may be the reason what's the necessity had the church been deceived they say all this while this is very good was their translation good before who's that you know Tyndall, Coverdale Matthew Bible, the great Bible Geneva Bible, Vicious Bible was their translation good before? I mean you're, you're trapped no matter what you do here no matter what you answer here you're, you're in a trap um, um, hath the church been deceived? Was their translation good before? Why did they amend it? Was it not good? Why was it then obtruded to the people? See the point? So if these translations were good then why do you change it? And if they weren't good, why did you publish them? Why did you give it to us? You know. And they say, number eleven. Well, translators they translate. They recognize that all translations, since they're done by fallible men, are not perfect and thus can be improved upon. Yet for all that, as nothing is begun and perfected at the same time. And the latter thoughts are thought to be wiser. So if we, building upon their foundation that went before us and being helped by their labors, do endeavor to make that better which they left so good, no man, we are sure, hath caused to mislike us. We are persuaded if they were alive, they would thank us. So here's the obvious answer to why there's been a continuous stream of English translations. Translations can always be improved upon. And the translators of King James Version would certainly not have objected to good faith attempts to improve their work. Now the King James, the only people say you can improve upon the King James. It was, you know, done once and all. And, but the preface continues, says, Therefore let no man's eye be evil because his majesty is good, neither let any be grieved that we have a prince that seeketh the increase of the spiritual wealth of Israel. But let us rather bless God for the ground of our heart for working this religious care in him to have the translations of the Bible maturely considered and examined. For by this means it comes to pass that whatever is sound already... Those previous translations, and all are sound for substance in one of our one and one or other of our editions. So, when we when we are revising those previous translations, we're not saying they're not sound doctrinally, theologically. They're sound. All is sound for substance, and whatever. And the worst of ours is far better than their authentic vulgar. They're talking about. The Vulgate. They're talking about the Duet version, kind of about the Catholic Bibles. They're looking at the Catholic one. The same will shine as gold more brightly, being rubbed and polished. Also, if anything halting or superfluous or not so agreeable to the original, the same may be corrected and the truth set in place. So it says, you know, this makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? I mean, uh, it's worthwhile to go back over and look at these translations, and if you can improve upon them. These previous translations were sound. Nobody was led astray by these things doctrinally, you know, or theologically. You could get the doctrine of salvation and the correct doctrines out of them, but you can improve on verses, on meanings, and and make corrections. 12. The translators admired the work of previous translators and recognized that other translations are also the word of God, even if they contain minor errors. Now, that's a big point. How do you define the King James only position. Sometimes you'll see a, I've seen a whole article on how do you define King James? It's really quite simple. Here's here's how you define King James only. A King James only position is only the King James is the word of God. That's it. Only the King James is the word of God. No other translation can be called the word of God. But the translators themselves say no. They recognize that other translations are also the Word of God, even if they contain minor errors. In fact, they acknowledge that errorless translation is impossible, since translators are not like apostles who were superintended by the Holy Spirit. A. And to the same effect, we say that we are far off from condemning any of their labors that travailed before us, either in this land or beyond. Well, there's Tyndall. Remember, he's in Europe translating. In King, James, in King Henry's time, or King Edward's, if there were any translations or corrections of a translation in his time, there weren't really as far as we know, or Queen Elizabeth's of ever-renowned memory, that we acknowledge them to be raised up of God for the building and furnishing of the church. They deserved to be had of us and of posterity and everlasting remembrance. Now, the latter we answer, that we do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow that the very meanest translation an old English word something like the very poorest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession for we have seen none of theirs of the whole Bible as yet now what does that mean well remember that do are 1609 1610 so they had come out with the um, new Testament already but not the whole old testament until 1610. And so they're writing this preface before that has really been published. So they're talking about, we've seen none of the whole Bible. So men set forth of our profession, that would be, you know, Protestants, Church of England, whatever, containeth the Word of God. They is the Word of God. So any translation that's faithful, generally faithful, can be called the Word of God, even though they don't agree exactly, because they contain the message of God. The truth of God. And as he said, they say, Nay is the word of God. And the King's speech which he uttered in Parliament, being translated into French, Dutch, Italian, and Latin, is still the King's speech. Though it not be interpreted by every translator with the like grace or peradventure so fitly for a phrase nor expressive for sense, and so on. He goes on. But skip down a few lines. No cause, therefore, while the word translated should be denied to be the word or forbidden to be current. There is a good phrase. No cause, therefore, while the word translated should be denied to be the word or forbidden to be current. Well, that's the whole point we're arguing about the King James only. Why do we have to read a Bible that was translated 400 years ago? You know, can't we have a current English version? Is that somehow wrong? The King James only position say, yeah. Yeah, you can't have any current translation no matter what. It's got to be the King James they say no it should be able to be current notwithstanding that some imperfection and blemishes may be noted in the setting forth of it for whatever was perfect under the sun where apostles or apostolic men that is men and do with the extraordinary measure of God's spirit and privileged with the privilege of infallibility had not their hand so translations are not perfect they're saying we acknowledge that only what the apostles did in writing the inspired documents that's perfect so this is, you know, this is very good stuff here. The translators then give an example of what is considered to be a translation with numerous defects. And in spite of these problems, can still be called the word of God. It should be said word of God. not God's but Sometimes my printer on my computer puts a, does something strange there. It's supposed to be a period there and there's an S there. So they say, the translation of the 70th, what are they talking about? The translation of the 70. <clears throat> we talked about the translation of the 70. The Septuagint. Remember that Greek translation of the Old Testament? The Septuagint. They're very familiar with that. They say, it dissenteth from the original Hebrew. They're saying in many places. Neither doth it come near it for perspicuity, gravity, majesty. Yet which of the apostles did condemn it? Condemn it? Nay, they used it. We talked about that. That is clear from some of the Old Testament quotations, New Testament quotations from the Old Testament, they're quoting the Septuagint perfectly. So, um, you know, translations don't have to be perfect to be called the Word of God. Now, obviously, you can have a translation which seeks to distort the Word of God, like the Jehovah's Witness you know, the New World Translation of the Holy Spirit of Jobs. They're they're seeking to distort and pervert the Trinity and other doctrines. So, yeah, we recognize you can have a perverted, but that's not what we have in most English Bibles, you know. Um, Thirteen, the translators answer the objection that their work only adds to the proliferation of English translations. They note there is nothing particularly unique about their work. It's only a continuation of the process of revision of previous translations and making improvements, in previous translations is a positive thing. Yet before we end, we must answer a third cavil an objection of theirs against us, for altering and amending our translations so often, wherein truly they deal hardly and strangely with us, for to whomever was it imputed for a fault by such as were wise, to go over that which he had done and to amend it where he saw cause. B, but it is now high time to leave them and to show in brief what we propose to ourselves. And what course we held in this, our perusal and survey of the Bible. Truly good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better. Or out of many good ones, one principle, good one, not justly to be accepted against, that hath been our endeavor, that our mark. <clears throat> so, this preface alone would refute, you know, these King James only people, you know, if you just, if they were forced to understand and accept what it means, obviously, in plain English. What about marginal notes? I say here on slide 22 translators were not opposed to marginal notes in 1611 there were 6,637 in the Old Testament 1,018 in the Apocrypha 767 in the New Testament for a total of 8,422 and that's another thing that you know King James only people argue against they don't like marginal notes they criticize the New King James version and any other version which has a marginal note but they had 8,000 notes it says uh, they say some peradventure would have no variety of senses to be set in the margin. Well, that's modern King James only. They don't want a margin that says it could be translated this way. They condemn that. They condemn any translation that says you could have another way to translate this. But they say some would have no variety of senses, lest the authority of Scripture to resolving of controversies that show of uncertainty should be somewhat shaken. Well, that's exactly what modern King James only people say, that's their argument but we hold their judgment not to be so sound in this point point. It please God in his divine providence here and there to scatter words and sentences that difficulty and doubtfulness, not in doctrinal points that concern salvation for in such it hath been vows that the scriptures are plain, but in matters of less moment that fearlessness would better beseem us than confidence There be many words in the scripture which be never found there but once. And again, there are many rare names of birds, beasts, precious stones concerning which the Hebrews themselves are so divided among themselves for judgment that they may seem to have defined this or that rather than that, say something, say something. Then because they were sure of that, then, you know, said. So even the Hebrew scholars are divided sometimes of what the Hebrew text is. So should we just put one meaning down or should we Should we have a margin now in such case he says a margin page 44 do well to admonish the reader to seek further and not to conclude or dogmatize upon this or that peremptorily therefore as St. Augustine said that variety of translations is profitable for finding out the sense of scriptures well, of course the King James only people are totally opposed to that but we encourage people in our church to do that. I mean, we use the NIV. I think it's generally the best for the average person, personally. But it's good to look at the ESV or look at New American Standard just kind of see what other translations are doing. It's helpful. It's a good thing to do. Nothing wrong with that. As they say. Um, And they say, this is their cut at St. Augustine here, where the text is not so clear must needs to do. They that are wise had rather have their judgments at liberty in difference of readings, than to be captivated to one when it may be the other. So he's saying, you know, you'd rather you'd rather know it could be this or that, rather than just saying it's this when we're not absolutely certain about the meaning of a particular word. So, uh, of the 767 notes in the New Testament, 35 are explanatory notes are brief expositions 582 give alternate translations 112 give a more literal rendering of the Greek than the translators judge suitable for the text and 37 give readings of different manuscripts that's an important one 37 give readings of different manuscripts I mean the King James only people would make you believe that the TR is it, it's fixed it's solid, there's no variation so an example of an explanatory note is found in the word measures in Matthew 16, 33 and I've got a picture of it here on slide 23 and you can see in the margin there it says the word in the Greek is a measure containing about a peck and a half wanting little more than a pint so that's what an explanatory note same kind of thing we have in our modern Bibles kind of explaining for the reader what it is an alternative translation is found in Matthew 6.2 here's a picture of Matthew 6.2 here the text reads therefore when thou doest thine alms do not sound a trumpet before thee the margin suggests the translation is an alternate possibility therefore when thou doest thine alms cause not a trumpet to be sounded before thee so they're suggesting you could have this is another way to translate this we do that in modern Bibles but again the King James only people the King James only people are not going to use a Bible that has these notes in them because this would destroy their whole position on this Um, a more literal translation is found at Romans 7-5 here's Romans 7-5 and uh, you can see the little cross there where it says the Greek the Greek really sort of means passions, He said they say. So Romans 7, 5, the text reads, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, the margin explains the Greek word for passions, motions is literally passions. Finally, in Luke 17, 36, I got a picture of that in slide 26, is found an example of a variant reading. this is really deadly to the King James only, besides the words two men in the field and one shall be taken and the other left, the margin reads this this 36 is warning in most of the Greek copies so they're realizing hey this is not really found in most of the Greek manuscripts, but it's been in our Bibles for a long time it's been in these early Bibles it's in the Latin Vulgate, but it's not uh, in most copies Number 15, 27. The King James Version replaced the Bishops' Bible as the version authorized for use in the Church of England. So there it is. is. Third, It's sort of the third authorized version. Authorized in the sense of authorized to be read in the Church of England. It replaces the Bishops' Bible. Number 16. Like all versions before it, The 1611 contained a number of printing errors. Here's the 1611. Matthew 1625. His is repeated. See that? But see, again, the King James only people want us to think that these things can't happen. You know, there's no errors in the King James. Well, then I have a question on that one because... Um, I'm just thinking of uh, there's a verse in uh, Genesis where you know when God's telling Adam and Eve to go and fill the earth in the King James version. In what it's... book of the Bible? Book of Genesis. Oh, I thought it said John. From, uh, okay, John. Uh, uh, I'm no, sorry. In Genesis. Okay. When God's telling Adam and yeah. Eve, you know, in the King James uh, version, it says, "Go and replenish." The word "replenish" is mm-hmm. used there. So is that one of these uh, printing errors? No, no. most no. people would think replenish means to refill. Yes, you know. but that's one of those words that... Uh, the, the Hebrew word doesn't mean necessarily to fill up again. Okay. So replenish doesn't mean that. In fact, I think I have on my phone here words that are... What do they call them? What do I call them here? Uh, stupid words are not stupid words, but they're, <laughs> they're sort of unnecessary words. Uh, they're like words like uh, uh, "irregardless" or "regardless." Uh-huh. So both mean exactly the same thing. Irregardless of what you do or regardless of what you do, they're uh, you know they're they mean they mean the same thing. So there's that's. That's kind of, I think replenish in English has that same sort of thing. It doesn't also, it doesn't always mean that. But the Hebrew just means fill up. So it's, I don't think that's a I technically I don't think that's a mistake on the King James Translators part there in that particular. Yeah. But people take it as that. Oh, I, I, people build a whole theology I mean, on it's it. Never, it's never bothered me personally. Yeah. People literally, people literally yes. say right to my face, see this means that there are people here. That's right. Animals. Yeah, there was another, uh, you know, the <laughs> so, gap theory especially, there was yeah. a pre-Adamic race and yeah. and that. So it's been used for that. Yeah. But the Hebrew doesn't suggest any of that. And I don't know that the translators really meant that with re. Fill, necessarily, replenish the earth. Um, so um, there's a repeated word. Here's some extra words in Exodus fourteen ten. These are just from a sixteen eleven King James. You can go online and find original sixteen eleven now. And you just on the internet, you can go and look at every page. It's all. Several universities have it, and so forth. So you've got you know. Errors like that. You've got a 1631 edition left out not in the 7th commandment. Thou shalt commit. It said, here it is. It's the Wicked Bible, called the Wicked Bible. Thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> and the printer was fined uh, some money for producing that Bible because he actually left out the "not there, thou shalt not. Uh, a uh, 1795 edition is called the murderer's Bible because Mark nine twenty seven read let the children first be killed instead of filled <laughs> 17 although the King James Version was superior to all previous versions it was not well received at first many Puritans, Calvinists other Protestants continued to use the Geneva Bible until it went out of print in 1644 one famous scholar of the time Hugh Broughton Sent a critique of the King James to one of the king's attendants. The late Bible was sent to me to censure, that does, that means to review, which bred in me a sadness that will grieve me till I while I breathe. It is so ill done. Tell his majesty that I'd rather be rent in pieces of wild horses than any such translation by my consent should be urged upon poor churches. The new edition crosses me, I require it to be burnt. Now is nonsense. The King James is superior to all these versions. It's vastly, it's even better than the Geneva Bible. It's much better done, vastly superior. Broughton had been excluded from the translation committee, so that might have been why he... As late as 1659, the Reverend Robert Gell, a minister of the parish of St. Mary in London, published an 800-page treatise denouncing the King James, discussing its faults in detail, one of which he argued was a denial of Christ's authority, I mean this is nonsense but you can always find people who don't like anything no matter what version it is, what translation you'll always find objectors many objected to the inclusion of the Apocrypha well naturally Protestants did You know, more, more uh, evangelical Protestants didn't want it uh, this came to such an issue that in 1615 the Archbishop of Canterbury decreed that anyone who published an edition of the King James without the Apocrypha would be in prison for one year and remember, all these Bibles contain the Apocrypha, so there's nothing new about the King James here. They all had it, so it was a tradition, remember, they had. So I say you're finally here. The first Bible printed in America, 1782. Uh, the Apocrypha continued to be included in mostly until 1826 in England and 1782 in, in, in the United States. The first Bible printed in the United States by Robert Aiken did not contain the Apocrypha. So in America you had Protestants. You didn't have, you know, too many as many Anglican General Protestants. So remember, I said until the Revolutionary War you couldn't print a Bible in America because England uh, they controlled the, the the printing of this, and you couldn't print. And so all the Bibles that were people used in America had the Apocrypha in them. But the Protestants in America, as soon as the Revolutionary War starts, they say they start printing Bibles and the first one printed doesn't have the Apocrypha in it. All right, let's uh, stop right there at page 45.